Howdy. Welcome to another week of Canon Calls. This week, Dr. Story, the official Canon Calls doctor, is back on the podcast to talk about the 10 things that we got wrong about COVID and our general COVID update. Eventually, we will have him on the podcast to talk about something other than COVID, but as it is, it's kind of a big deal. Before we get started, I wanted to ask that if you're enjoying these interviews and you're enjoying the podcast, I would ask that you please leave a rating and a review. These really do help our podcasts get out more, be seen more, and be able to bless more and more people. So without further ado, meet again our friend, Dr. Rod Story. Twenty twenty. I mean, although COVID has happened, it's it's the year of Rod Story on uh, Cannon Call. So, thank you so much for being here, and like I said, quick notice. So, well, thank you for the hook. I might have to come up with maybe the doc with the biggest mouth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we're we're excited to have you. It's another episode on a COVID update, which people have have really enjoyed. Doctor Story, where are we at? What is coronavirus doing currently? Oh, uh, you know, uh, Idaho is a little slow to get to the coronavirus. We've been doing the uh, sheltering in place thing since what it felt like March or April or maybe even 2019. Right. Uh, here locally, we, we have uh, three different communities that are taking a very different approach. And that's actually a very interesting study. And uh, if you're a sociology student, a great way to look at how societies handle things like this. Most of our communities uh, have a little distance from the next big town and are kind of a community onto themselves, a little bit of travel between, but for the most part, they mind their own manners. So between Lewiston, Moscow, and Pullman, we find ourselves with three different approaches. Lewiston being, hey, uh, let's let people mask in as they see fit and let businesses declare it, which they've pretty much done. Moscow here, where we've had a, a rather heavy-handed local city council that has demanded masks, but not applied them in certain circumstances like outdoor seating, but on the sidewalk just outside they have. And then third, uh, Pullman, which is in Washington State, which is a whole nother uh, special circumstance. <laughs> very, very heavy-handed and, and businesses struggling heavily because of it. And even WSU right. canceled for the fall. So when you look at those three communities, they're all about 50,000 in size. They have actually all had about the same number of cases. So it's kind of fascinating to think about. All in about 250 cases or thereabouts, we've seen a significant rise here in Moscow and Pullman with students coming back. But almost all of those are due to mandatory testing and are finding lots of very minimally symptomatic or non-symptomatic people who just happen to test positive. Uh, in Lewiston, uh, you had 19 people die of COVID, but it was early on. And they were mostly nursing homes that now have been able to actually manage and, and protect their, their people versus here in our area. We've had one hospitalization between the two communities. And between Pullman and Moscow. Between Pullman and Moscow, and not a single death. So interesting uh, that all three scenarios are actually uh, yielding a very similar result with some caveats that are unique to each one. Yeah. So Pullman's about eight miles to our west. Lewiston's 20 or so south. Um, what have you gathered in terms of, so three different approaches. Uh, it seems like the results have been somewhat, they've all rhymed together. Does your practice cover all three areas? No. Um, I okay. mean, we see people from all all those places. And I have hospital privileges in all those communities, so I'm uniquely connected to each of them. I really think it kind of comes to a couple of points that come out of it. First off, that you can um, manage and protect the vulnerable, and you don't necessarily need to shut down your community to do that. Secondly, that if you test, you will find it, 
but is that testing actually meaningful and purposeful? It's actually created quite a, uh, a backlash against the local university where people are saying, oh, look, it's here, they're bringing it. And yet when you look at actually the impact on our community, what you're seeing is this young, healthy people who are having to contract it and move on and, and continue on with life. And yet it hasn't uh, gone as widespread as people think. And third, there is a dramatic difference in the, the culture that comes out of these mandates, whether you have a culture that completely shuts it down from the state uh, level, uh, as our governor Inslee has done in Washington, whether you have a local city council that's in Wa- Moscow that's created somewhat of a toxic culture of people calling each other out on the, on the community, or whether you have a, hey, take responsibility for yourself approach that Lewiston has done. All three actually seem on the ground to have the same results. I think one thing we've talked about over and over is the... Um how news, how we get news, how quickly we get news, what does the news mean? Um, and even just between our last visit, I've noticed, you know, anytime there's another p- positive test, it's a, it's a new headline and it just continues. And there's no, there's no. Well, and if you're paying attention to what you're seeing are graphs that seem to have dropped out some necessary information that might give some context. Yeah. What yeah. we've lost are a report of the total deaths that are occurring due to this, um, but we're still seeing the cases mount. What's unique about the American situation is we're testing on an average 10 times more than any other country in the world. Partly that's because we have an amazing uh, medical culture that can create wonderful tests that do actually do what they're designed for. And we've uh, created a culture that wants them. So a good consumer base that can go get those tests done. So we're testing like crazy and we're finding the disease, again, not necessarily meaningful. But that's reporting out is number of cases rather than actual the effect of those cases. And those cases are also being uh, mounted up. But here we are eight months in. Uh, the cases that have completed and done should not be included. It really would be better if we were saying, what are the active cases that are currently going on in our community, knowing that really we have a window for each person of about um, seven to 14 days. As just a citizen of Moscow, I am largely relegated to what happens on the Moscow Pullman Daily News or what have you. I've, you might be in a unique circle. Uh, given your profession, what is it like with other, uh, what is it like in your circles, the doctors and Oh, nurses? I think the conversation that's often uh, shared among staff behind doors is, we're tired of this. Uh, this is overblown. And frankly, uh, we're ready to move forward and, and not be afraid of this. In public, it's very challenging. Obviously, there's a lot of shouting down of, of uh, conversations or, or opinions if it doesn't meet the uh, political concern that it seems to be. It's a, it's a real shaming going on in the medical community, just like in, in other communities when it comes to whether it's race or, or conversations of, of, uh, of wealth and poverty. There seems to be one opinion you must have um, and not much room for others. So it, would you say it's equally as polarized in, that, in those circles as it is largely in the public? Or would you say behind closed doors, it's actually everyone sort of agrees as they look at the Oh, I think that it partly depends on your, on the political persuasion or your belief systems that you bring to it. And isn't that the reality? We, we see things through a biased lens. You cannot live without a informed view of the world. Depending on where you get that informed view is what you will see. If you see the world as a random, dangerous place, uh, you will live accordingly. If you see it as the product of a loving God who's redeeming it, you'll see it in a very different way. That's good. Now, when I asked you to come on, you said you had an idea for 10 things we've gotten wrong about COVID. Was that right? Yeah. I awesome. think it's, uh, it's time to do a, a Monday morning quarterback and to maybe look at how the game plan worked or didn't work out. What's interesting is we early on, 
really as a culture said, okay, this is scary. What can we do to, to do our part to slow this down? I think people took that to heart. Um, some things that we've done have actually been helpful, but m- maybe not in the big picture. Others have been um, not helpful and maybe now looking back somewhat foolish. So let's actually take um, stock in it. Uh, let's look at those carefully and then say, how can we help our neighbors just think ahead? And how can we also wisely move forward? Great. Let's do it. I'm going to try and keep it to 10. You can uh, not get too many rabbit trails, but we'll, we'll, uh, I'll keep these bulleted. Uh, the caveat being, I'm not going to offer a whole lot of uh, scientific background, but I would encourage you, go uh, check me out, be a Berean, uh, not just in the word, but also on doctors and make sure that we're telling you the truth. First one I would say is, number one, uh, testing is actually quite accurate. So there's a lot of people out there like, man, you know, oh, I got a positive test. I need to go get another one because they're, they're hooey. False um, positives. Yeah, false positives. You know, a lot of that information came from early on testing that came out of China, which was bunk and, and badly formed. Uh, here in the United States, we're almost entirely using a test that picks specific pieces of the RNA, or people would think of that as DNA, virus-specific that is unique to COVID and not to any other viruses. And it's amazingly sensitive and specific to that virus, well into the high 90 percentile. So if it says yes, it's a yes. If it says no, it's quite likely that it's no because it should be able to pick up even the most small amount depending on how the testing was done. Okay, so testing is largely legit. Yeah, testing is largely legit. And, and uh, I think that's unique for us to be able to say uh, who has it and who, who doesn't have it. Second, uh, I think this is a unique one. Uh, COVID is everywhere. Have you, uh, <laughs> have you seen people believe that as he coughs into his shirt, thankfully? Um, you know, we've, we've behaved very strangely as though you could get COVID from anywhere or anything. Uh, I'll give you a, a caveat or a, a little story. I went into uh, Goodwill, noticed that they had the, uh, the uh, trial, try-on rooms closed, thought, well, that's kind of strange. Decided I'll just pull that shirt over the top. Uh, it didn't fit. I had a little squeezy. The attendant was right there, ripped it off my side, and we got to quarantine that piece of clothing for 72 years, or 72, 72 hours. <laughs> well, 72 years, We wouldn't maybe. be surprised, I don't know. Yes. Uh, we've behaved like clothing, like surfaces, like food, like uh, water bubblers. I came from Wisconsin, so I can say that. Fountains are, are going to give this and spread this. And you know what? The reality is that that's not true. There's a lot of studies that show that people are not getting it. This is a respiratory illness that's spread by things that are coughed or sneezed or breathed out. Um, once those particles hit the surface, yeah, you can find them. The reality is they're actually not the, the, the main way or even the uh, a common way that people are getting this illness. Where that matters is people are now spraying every surface possible with all sorts of toxic chemicals. There is a problem there, like schools. I mean, I see pictures of them fumigating uh, children's chairs, and uh, our own school district is taking a day off between each school day to completely wipe down surface with highly toxic chemicals. Those are, uh, that's an overly aggressive way of treating something that actually doesn't seem to make a difference. Uh, Even the CDC says we should be opening up water bubblers and letting people drink to their heart's content. I just heard somebody mention in a podcast, uh, it was a restaurant podcast, basically, what are they doing in COVID? And he said that they basically boil the money every night. And Hmm. I thought like, that is crazy. I imagine someone with a spoon stirring the, yeah. uh, the pots and then hanging it by a little yeah. paper clip every... I was just like, yeah. I mean, money's dirty, but I mean, it's... Yes. And we live in a world that has contaminated surfaces. Yes, please wash your hands and do that because there are things that are past. Uh, those gut bugs that go around, they're almost all passed by surfaces. But um, 
COVID-19? Well, we, you know, the, we're, I think we're going to see consequences of, of spraying Roundup everywhere. All right. Number three, keep me on task here. Kids. Kids are carriers and they're going to kill everybody. You know, that's bogus. And, and what's, what's interesting is actually the data is coming out to show quite the opposite. The kids are probably actually going to be a major portion of what helps us get this going and get on. Kids are least likely to form significant illnesses where they're spreading around and most likely to form an aggressive immune response that then creates protection for the entire family, protection for grandparents, protection for our communities going forward. We are treating schools like they are the bastion of illness, and that has been true in, in several ways for other illnesses, but not necessarily for this. And we probably are learning more about viruses than ever, and that kids regularly get things, kids pass it around, kids' immune systems are strong and can handle it, and kids actually or our blessing to everyone in the community by getting these things and getting them over. Is that because the nature, as you're saying in your last point, the nature of this is not necessarily surface, that kind of disease, but it's a respiratory? Well, it's respiratory, so it good passes around in school. And, and, and you've probably had that experience, as I have, where when, you, when things were going around in school, everybody was out for half a week, and then the other class, half the class the next week. Things get passed around in school. But, but what we are now treating kids as is like a massive danger to the community. And it couldn't be further from the truth. All right, keep it on task. Number four uh, follows actually closely on that heel, and it's this idea of people spreading the illness who do not have symptoms. They call them the asymptomatic spreaders. Again, it's turning out to be very bogus. Really beautiful study this last week it came out of China. China uh, has a, a, a communist re regime which can lock everybody in one little town and then test everybody. And they did that in actually one town, about 5,000 people they tested. The ones that they found that almost everybody had COVID, what was interesting is they were able to actually follow people all the way through. And those people that had minimal or no symptoms were not the ones spreading it. What do you know? This is just like every other virus that we encounter, any other respiratory illness, where it really is people who are actively sick, coughing, sneezing, who are the ones that are spreading it. So putting everybody uh, or taking precautions and treating everybody like they may have the illness is really unkind um, and not necessary. Number five. All right. Thanks for keeping me on to ask. I'll take a negative approach in this, and that's that our community, uh, masks don't work. Have you heard that one yet? I've heard that. Yeah. Or maybe on the other side, masks work for everything. Yeah. We should wear them forever uh, like they do in China and other places. You know, masks do work. And I, and I think that there's more than enough information to say that they work, but you have to ask for what. So what I would tell you is this. They work for present, preventing those big spreaders from passing it around. And they do reduce some of the indoor spread that can happen. This is being spread by talking, being in a closed space. Uh, such as, uh, such as this uh, nice six-foot room <laughs> that we're uh, enjoying yeah. for our sound booth here today. And that's where most of the spread is happening is within families. But you have to ask again, what is it that we're trying to protect from or, or for? And I'm going to hold that thought for a sec. But I do think that masks work if your goal is to reduce or slow spread it's probably one of the few things that is uh, available out there. And actually, even um, the gossamer masks or, or other things that, are, that are people are wearing as a half-hearted temp do seem to reduce the amount of airflow. And that's because, you know, if you look at molecules, they condense in a certain area if they're held within that by, by breathing. And they prevent those big spreaders from spreading it everywhere. So when you, we think about masks, and especially in terms of mask mandates, we're seeing them enforced sort of on sidewalks or as you go into certain like grocery stores and everything else. 
you said it's it's mainly been passed around in tight spaces like family like spaces that families might find themselves in homes would you say even on the level of like grocery stores and outdoors or you know when masks you said we had to ask for what do they work sure. for what so we had a discussion i think uh three podcasts ago about who should be wearing masks. They really, uh, you should be first off wearing a mask if you are at high risk. So if you're one of those people that have to venture into the community, you've got a respiratory illness, you've got a a lung condition, you've got some immune deficiency, uh, you're getting up in years and you've got to go grocery shopping, wear a mask. We're trying to keep this from getting to you. And it is one of the tools that can slow or prevent someone from getting it. If you are actively sick, uh, well, you know what, Let's, let's actually not have you leave the home. It would be better if you stayed close instead of thinking that a mask is going to slow down or protect it. It's not doing as much as you think. How about applying it to the general population uh, and putting everybody in masks? Well, it it does appear to have some benefit as far as a general community, but it's not completely stopping this thing. If you look at these three communities just in themselves, you have one that has a complete distance from each other, second, one who's mandating masks and odd but certain circumstances, and the third who's just leaving it up to their own good citizens. In all three circumstances, it's continuing to slowly and and without hesitation spread. Slower, though, because now we have it spread over a eight or nine month time and maybe longer rather than the initial. We'll take Lewiston, for example. If someone in Lewiston, where it's it's recommended, it's not mandated, certain stores may say you have to have one, but hands off largely. If, If the retort was, well, the mandates have to come because it's not about the person who's high risk who puts one on to you know keep it away it's actually the people who are healthy that are giving it to other people it's actually for love of neighbor not to throw love of neighbor but basically it's on behalf of your neighbor that you wear one not that old people wear one is that right is that direction the right direction well, I, I i don't think as much because you have to ask the question of what else do masks do and and masks are significant hindrances for communication they cast a pale over each other as we, you know, walk and, and glare at each other and say, oh, you know, even with the mask, I'm not certain that you're not hiding something. There's a reason we put our bandits, our bad cowboys with the black hats in masks because it fits a persona. We can't help but look at each other that way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add a, a point B. So I know I only got 10 here, but what's fascinating about masks is the big question, will we actually keep this from, from actually happening in a community? And the only, the only way to actually stop this illness from spreading is for everyone to go hide in their homes. The masks are not stopping this. So if the masks are not stopping this, then what is the purpose? If the purpose is to, to prevent spread to those high-risk individuals, well, then there's actually better ways. A high-risk individual protecting them and actually, I think, an argument made then to let the rest of us wisely go ahead and get this illness. But I'm going to save that point for 10. I was going to ask, so, and you could tell me, we'll, we'll kick it later, but when you say best way to stop it, everybody be in their homes, don't come out. I've also heard something along those lines, you know, we just need to go, like the economy needs to shut down again, basically. And it always seems to me like, I think they think the virus is sort of standing around in the minute that it feels like we're not outside anymore, it's going to move on. It's absolutely not true because it's, it's here and it's going to finish its job. Okay. It really is. And we've seen that. So the states that were uh, most distant or were, uh, it looks like the states that were farthest away from mom. I saw a nice little graphic uh, that, that got the illness last. The states that um, had more space between, between people just naturally, the Wyomings of the world, the Montanas, they, they got the illness last. 
but they didn't actually not get the illness and it, it is running impeded through and it's going to finish its job no matter whether we wear masks or not. So then you have to ask, what is the cost of wearing masks? Who are we protecting? And is there better ways? All right, I'm going to keep going you, and you can uh, bring me back to that point. How about this one? Uh, those lovely uh, cones of shame that the uh, uh, servers are being recourse, forced to wear. The, the plastic shields, are they protecting us? Or the, uh, the nice uh, two by four foot plexiglass thing that's hanging from uh, clips from the ceiling. It's bogus. I mean, let's stop doing this, people. This is ridiculous. And the reason is, is again, this is respiratory illness. So where does this respiratory illness go? It goes into the atmosphere and, it, and it's spread that way. Is it going to uh, be stopped magically by a plastic shield that's in front of you? Is it going to not find its way around? You're thinking in an in a unwise fashion that is contrary to the way our world works. On the opposite side, being outside, wonderful. Like there's everywhere for that illness to go. And I'm going to hold that a sec. But, but let's get rid of these plexiglass windows and these face shields. And uh, someone in the plastics injury is making a buck right now. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I know someone who was in our local DMV who was told to put on a mask. And he said, well, you guys aren't in a mask. And they're behind the plexiglass. They're like, well, we're behind the glass. And he said, well, I'm behind the glass. <laughs> it all depends um, on your perspective, yeah, right? We're, yeah, we're, we're both on the It's like the, the monkeys at the zoo. And they're saying, you're the one behind bars. Exactly. Seven, singing. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Dangerous or not? Well, I, funny you mentioned it. I heard at our last, um, one of our last city council that the droplets, if someone's singing, have the potential to go 24 feet is what I was told. <laughs> so seems if, if you're under the impression that droplets are the enemy, it seems dangerous. And, and a lot of that came because early on there was a, uh, a choir practice, I think, in Washington state where a bunch of people got sick. Uh, a couple of them even died of the illness. Uh, I think it was very close to the outbreak in, in uh, Kirkland, Washington. Man, people stopped uh, singing. They stopped going to church. And, and we've had a huge dent in, in people's willingness to congregate for church. Partly on this misnomer that singing is causing uh, a, a sudden and severe release of symptoms into the community. You know, the reality is what they really saw was that there was a group of older people that were indoors and you had an actively sick person who was there and, not, and, and should have stayed home. That is the risk. There's some beautiful studies that, that have done a, a look at singing, and it's no more contagious than someone talking in the same room. So if you have someone that's sick, that's really what we're getting at. It's not singing. So please, people sing, particularly sing some of your, uh, your psalms, the one that are imprecatory, please. <laughs> quick. Yes. Quick. Outdoor sports. Okay. I love, I mean, it just, I, I can't help but just feel sad. For those people that are riding their bike or walking their dog and they're all by themselves and they're wearing the mask. You know, in our community, we shut down a, a several sports events that were outdoors, all on the perspective that this was a high risk event that was going to be passing it out. You know, some of that came uh, again from uh, uh, some early on reports, which is the way we've been digesting this COVID illness, uh, a uh, suspicion that maybe the event was what was going on. And it came from a, a a football match, soccer match, that had more than 50,000 people packed into a stadium cheering and yelling. And they had illness that got spread in that. I think there was a similar one with a rugby match. And so there was a sense of, boy, you know, any outdoor exposure is going to be a risk. Let's be realistic. We live in a world that has, um, I looked it up, one to the 10 to the 44th molecules in our atmosphere. Uh, these viruses quickly dissipate when they, if they're leaving someone who's even remotely sick. 
um, you, you would have to be breathing the same air right next to them. But we're talking about, you know, a one-to-one contact. So maybe if you're standing on the sidelines and you happen to be next to someone who's sick, well, you might get sick. But we're talking about a, a significantly different situation than someone who is sick in, a, uh, in an indoor circumstance. Please let people go back to playing sports. Our own town has taken an aggressive role of trying to protect everyone uh, by canceling student sports in the, in the school district. Please, uh, I think there's a great health benefit to be had. We are already stressing our kids through this circumstance. Uh, we're telling them that life is no longer normal. We're creating a, a sense that there's risks. Those risks are minimal, and, and really, uh, we need to go on living in spite of this. You mentioned there were two particular sport, kids' sports events that were shut down. I, I was playing City League softball this year, and the guy running it was so nervous that people were basically going to show up, take pictures, and run away, and him get shut down. So they had, if you were in the bullpen, you had to wear a mask. You're just hot and sweaty. And anyway, it's a significant misunderstanding of the universe that we live in and the way that viruses and illnesses are spread. It is a lie that being in the outdoors is a significant risk. I've been walking down the sidewalk as I've been trying to walk every street in Moscow to get in shape. And I've had people deviate out into the street and nearly get hit by a car. I think your risks were much higher by doing that. I didn't get to see a car wreck, but yeah, I've had folks just totally move on the other side. I live just down on the McConnell. So I'd just walk and people will big time deviate. Yeah, it's a fascinating problem. On our main street, we're handing out citations to people who are walking beside their cousin. And yet, if you take off your mask and sit at the outdoor seating for the restaurant, you can eat supposedly in a virus-free atmosphere. This is not uh, consistent and not thoughtful. So, unless you have a point about this coming, is it entirely arbitrary? I mean, is, it, is this in terms of like where masks are fine or not fine? Is I it- do think that there is a wisdom in, in, for high-risk people avoiding indoor circumstances and avoiding them, particularly in closed settings with actively ill people. Now, you have uh, four different things that I've just said there. High risk, indoor, in a, with an actively ill person for a length of time. Everything short of that is actually a very low risk exposure, if, if risky at all. Um, but we have then t- chosen a very top-down, broad, heavy-handed, everybody-must approach. Even in our own communities, whether it's uh, across the uh, eight miles that, uh, to the west of us in Pullman, whether it's here in town or whether it's in Lewiston. Uh, none of those approaches are, are shown to be any superior to others, except for uh, Lewiston, who, sh- who did have some initial outbreaks in a nursing home and hasn't since. Or in our own communities where they've taken steps to protect those nursing homes or group home circumstances, and we haven't had the outbreak. Well done. Those are the people that we should have been protecting from the, uh, instead we're trying to protect everybody else from everybody. The four things you mentioned there in terms of like what you should consider, how different is that just from like, would you recommend to anyone in 2018? This is a nasty player for particularly older people and high-risk people, not as bad as it sounds. Here in the United States, we've had about 180,000 deaths. They've almost entirely been in the 60 and above range. They're predictable in who it is. That is not what was predicted. Uh, we were expecting many millions of people to drop dead from this. That alone should cause us to say, uh, what did we get wrong about this illness? And, and what are we continuing to do that, that makes no sense whatsoever? All right, vaccines. 
everybody's favorite topic. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm going to get lots of emails from people saying, yeah. uh, oh, I can't wait to vaccine. Uh, right. Can't impress readers tend to be uh, vaccine uh, aggressives, right? The reality is that this is, there's, there's about 25 vaccines that are currently being considered for, for the U.S. They're all being fast-tracked. That should cause anyone to have some extra uh, pause about anything that happens in medicine that's fast-tracked. Of them, a quarter of them are embryonic stem cell uh, produced, uh, including uh, two that are the most likely to come to and have already received significant federal grants. Um, again, uh, this is a, a vast expansion of, of vaccine policy and a financial support coming from our federal government. Those are worrisome things. So fast track, embryonic stem cells, and uh, discussion of mandatory. Well, let's talk about this. So you have this illness. Talk about those. Yeah, we have this illness that, by and large, like with great predictability, for 99% of our population is very low risk, if risk at all. But now you're going to suggest that we give a manufactured product for an extremely low risk thing that actually probably carries as much risk or more. So if you're reading the data, and I encourage you to start digging, it's not being talked about much. Uh, you probably have heard of this uh, multi-inflammatory syndrome in children or MIS-C. Uh, it's where kids get this kind of, they call it Kawasaki syndrome. It's this uh, post-viral illness. We've seen about 500 cases in the United States. That's 500 uh, out of many, many, many thousand more uh, or millions, probably kids that have been exposed to it. We pro- we're learning an amazing amount about viruses in general from the COVID experience that probably suggests that this is way more prevalent than we ever expected from all sorts of illnesses, all sorts of viruses that get passed around. What do you know? Some of our people, some of our kids get bad reactions that is usually caused by an over-aggressive immune system responding. The data and the discussion of this uh, multi-inflammatory syndrome is, uh, that's being discussed at the um, scientific level suggests that probably the vaccine is going to likely have that same effect for the same number, if not more individuals, more people receiving this. All right, let's keep this in context. Vaccine, I, I'm actually not an v- anti-vaxxer. I think vaccines uh, for significant severe illnesses that are widespread is a wise idea. Should be weighed, should never be mandatory, should be allowed by uh, parents to make an informed decision based on their, their assessment of the risk. Shouldn't be just dismissed out of hand by parents uh, without a, a good conversation and a, and a humility that should come t- with seeking good understanding. But we're talking about mandatory. Okay, what does mandatory mean? Got to. Got to. Or else. Everybody. We're talking about 100% of people, right? There's data coming out that shows that 10 to 20% of people in a community getting COVID means everybody has finished it. Herd immunity achieved at 10 to 20%. At 10 to 20. 10 to 20%. Okay. So we could be achieving the same goal as vaccination by allowing relatively healthy, low-risk individuals to get sick with COVID, some of who, on a very, very rare basis, may get bad consequences. We're talking on a less than 0.000% at about 10 to 20% of our population versus 100% of our population getting a mandatory vaccine getting the same risk at perhaps the same rate, but we're talking, you know, 450 million people in the United States versus 10 to 20% of that for achieving herd population. Immunity and natural immunity is always preferred, particularly if it is not a terrible illness, particularly if you can mindfully and thoughtfully allow certain individuals to get it. 
and let the rest of us and, and, and take care of those that are high risk by, by letting the rest of us encounter the illness. Would those vaccines get in the way of herd immunity? You know, that's a big question. Um, we know, and, and there's good data that shows that encountering COVID in healthy individuals creates long-term immunity and that there are, there's actually a good uh, and likelihood that most kids are not getting a severe illness because they have encountered other coronaviruses recently. So if you've seen somebody in the family, you recognize the other one. Kids have a strong immunity because they've been getting ill, because they've been getting these viruses that circulate around. And because they've been doing that, they then have a strong immune re response that lasts and is protective to their family, to their communities, to their schools, uh, and slows or stops the spread. It is about the only way of actually stopping this coronavirus. I imagine we'll come back to that. Yes. So I'll well, let you go to and, and you can ask me questions, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish with number 10 and then you can help me fill in the gaps here by some questions. Is this the new normal is my last question. Are we getting this right? Like, did we wake up uh, on January 1st and, and uh, we are facing a, a new understanding of viruses that means we've got to behave from this point forward differently? I would argue that we are completely uh, misreading this illness. Um, now, we may, we may encounter uh, pandemics in the future, um, such as the uh, Spanish influenza that, that killed a large portion of the population in the many millions in the United States alone. We may encounter something even as, as recent as this uh, Spanish influenza in the 1960s that actually killed several millions. But this is not that illness. As we've talked, we've developed a, a fear that goes well beyond wisdom and wise practice that goes now to treating our neighbor poorly, to uh, uh, throwing flaming barbs on, barbs on Facebook, to enabling our police to, to sanction people who are not towing the line. We've gotten really nuts. We have really unbalanced a, an assessment of the risk of a virus versus the risk of not living. So we've had the opportunity over some time, over the last two or three episodes, to hit this as in real time. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned several times that um, we have gone deep in learning as much as we can about viruses. Mm. What, are, what are a few of the things, uh, so as we started, we didn't know much. Mm -hmm. There was a big debate about, is this like the flu? Uh, it seemed like this is definitely not like the mere flu mm -hmm. won the day at the time. As we've learned more, what are, what are things that we've learned about COVID-19 uh, over time? Sure. With COVID-19, what we've learned is it is very predictable, probably more than even influenza is. Influenza is somewhat less predictable. You do read about healthy individuals who wake up with the flu on Friday and don't make it to work on Monday, and we're just not seeing that with COVID-19. So it's predictable. And that, that's interesting in that uh, if you look at the Chinese experience, which we took with half an eye towards, are they telling the truth? really did know that right from January, February, March, and it really has held true. I think we got thrown by the Italian experience, which uh, was primarily got into nursing homes and it took out elder families that were in tough shape already. What else do we know? Uh, the herd immunity is a, is a really unique thing. Uh, it takes probably 50 to 70% for influenza to achieve that. Um, so coronaviruses are very different from that regards. Can you talk about the 10 to 20? That, that surprised me. So why is it not a majority percentage needed? It, it likely represents a couple of things. Uh, it likely represents, first off, uh, um, people who haven't been exposed but have not been tested. So people, there's such a large 
group of people with coronavirus who will never know that they had it. And that's also uniquely different. Most people know when they've had the flu. I like to tell them, hey, uh, if you feel like you've been hit by a truck, yeah, you probably had the flu. The coronavirus, for most people that encounter it, will not have that experience. Yes, some people will, and, and it's a lousy illness, and they can even have lingering challenges that last for a while. Very minute amount when you look at the total number of people that are being exposed. And we have that from some, some uh, unique observational data that looked at large communities that everybody could be tested, and, and by and large, almost everybody that, that was exposed never knew they had it. This experience in very 2020 fashion, or at least in the last four or five years to a decade, has very quickly gone from a medical issue to now a political issue very quickly. As far as you've watched this, I mean, like immediately to engage anyone, you're now like a councilman or you're now a politician or what is that? Has that happened in your in your experience? Anything in your uh, time as, as a doctor? Like- I think what's fascinating is we live in a time where everyone can Google something and, and come up with an answer and feel that they've become uh, uh, wise in, in their own eyes. That's dangerous. I think we also live in a time of highly digested information that doesn't leave context. And so we're experiencing shared fears on a massive schedule. We're, uh, we're, we're experiencing shared responses and shared uh, social shaming. We're also um, we're experiencing uh, this on a altogether alone kind of fashion. We are lacking for community more than ever. And you see the divisive lines that are falling in so many ways. Um, it is a fantastic opportunity as believers to begin breaking that down because only true community is found in, in uh, kindness and forgiveness and humility, uh, which are certainly uh, pathologically lacking. We talked shortly after we finished the last episode. I hated that I didn't just maintain the recording. Ah. But um, (laughs) you started to talk about there are things that in our response, this is a classic trade-offs thing where everything has a cost to it, every action that we do. So a a sort of aggressive, um, and especially sort of the mandatory tactics that have been used, there are more and even it seems medical or psychological costs to this that are not being considered. And you talked a little bit about that. Could you talk about that now? This is weighing heavily on people. Um, And and we have unleashed, maybe for um, nefarious reasons, fear in our peoples. As a physician, this is of great concern. I want people to be thoughtful and, and to pay attention to the things they should and to disregard the rest. Like, I'll give you an example. Most people have anywhere between eight and 10 uh, symptoms that they experience every month. Like if you paid attention to those, you would become a basket case. Most of the human experience is little things that we encounter and most of which we have for the purpose of keeping the main thing the main to endure, to push through, to ignore. When it comes to the point of like, oh, that's nagging. I probably should see a doctor about that. Well, that's wise. That's thoughtful. That's good. When we make every a uh, symptom or every worry our own, then we get in trouble. The areas where I, I see that as remarkable is, is a couple. One is, um, and you probably read this, people are putting off routine care. One of the wisest things that I often feel I have to encourage people to consider is screening for cancer. My own father died of colon cancer at a young age. It runs in my family. I'll be getting that screening that I am not looking forward to, but getting it done as a young man. 
And that's a good way of screening. Is it an enjoyable, uh, ideal thing to get a colonoscopy? No. But we know that that's a real risk, a life-shortening risk. A way of being a good steward of your body is to do the right things, to go see your doc and get a lump and bump check, to check some labs every so often to make sure you're not having something that's sliding up. All of that's being put on the back burner as we, as we send a message from our clinics with pictures of wearing, people wearing gowns and masks and face shields saying, we're safe. But the opposite message is coming through. It's a message of you're dangerous and you should probably stay away from us. That's, that message is getting through. Uh, it was a crazy uh, survey study, medical study, just showing the costs on people's psyche. In the last six months, or actually last three months, they, they uh, asked people the question, are you experiencing suicidal thought? Have you thought about ending your life? And surprisingly, one in 10 people in their 20s and 30s, one out of 10, uh, consider doing that. In our town, we're throwing up signs now that say, you can do it, don't give up, you're worth something. So we're sending this crazy message on one where we hope that you'll see this message and somehow value your life. But on the opposite, we're, set, we're telling you that everything's ended. Uh, there's no new, no new normal any longer, and people will always be dangerous. That is a shame. Let us return to being kind to each other and loving each other in spite of the risks, because those risks are worth it. I, see, I hear that from older people who have lived through these and who are saying, uh, yeah, I, I recognize I might die of this, but I'm also in the last years of my life, and I want to see my grandkids. Uh, eight months has gone by and I'm not seeing him. I want to see them. It's worth it to me to meet that friend for coffee. It's worth it. I'm going to take some wise precautions when I go to Winco, but at the same time, uh, life is, has risks and those risks are worth taking uh, for the benefit of love and kindness and uh, things that we need. I do think that that's not point number 11. We have created a toxic culture where we are saying that th some things are just not worth the risk. We really need each other, and this, this can't continue in the way. Could it, if, if things were awful in the future with some new pandemic that comes through? Sure, let's, let's reevaluate. Is it going to be worth it when influenza comes around this fall? Are we going to keep going in the same pattern? Um, please don't. Do you think that we will be successful in putting the toothpaste back in this tube? You know, I think we will for a couple of reasons. The first is people know these needs. And so you're seeing a return to it. You're seeing the baseball leagues and the things happening. And they're happening in a quiet corner rather than on Main Street uh, as people are continuing life and people are weighing it out. This pandemic will not go away. This pandemic of fear will not go away until we have thoughtful, wise people take an honest look at their risks and take a look at what's going on. And then with kindness, move forward with life uh, and show others that we can do this. Cousins may, in fact, one day be able to walk down I hope the Moscow so. side. I, I think as, as believers who are not chained, not slaves to fear, what a great opportunity we have. I think the second is nothing really has actually stopped this virus. Let's be honest. This virus has found every corner, uh, has moved into every community. Um, even New Zealand, who tried to, to shut it out, could not keep it out. It is unstoppable. So in, in that regard, maybe it's a better way to stop behaving like that. It can be the case. Let's stop actually treating masks like they are going to stop this virus. And instead, let's actually look at what will, which is letting people encounter it and develop immunity and then take care of the rest of the people who are, who are at higher risk. Last thing that we'll do then is I, one thing I've appreciated in our episodes is even at the get-go, 
one of the things you said was folks uh, should take the opportunity to uh, see folks that need to take precautions, identify those people, find ways you can help those people. Would your advice be the same? I imagine you wouldn't say otherwise, but what would be your advice as we're at this point of the coronavirus? Yes. Um, I would have two things, actually. First off, I, I think we've uh, wisely looked at people and, and our uh, elder uh, family members, people at risk, and said, hey, um, why don't you hide and we'll bring you groceries for a while. I think actually having the opposite conversation is probably worthwhile. Mom and dad, what do you want? What do you expect if you did get sick? Um, I've had great conversations because we did lo- lose an uncle who was in his mid-60s to COVID just a couple weeks ago. So the risk is real and, uh, and we're aware of it. And yet, We've said as a family, it's great for my mother-in-law to travel and visit the mourning sister uh, who now is without a husband and has a special needs child that needs to be cared for. There are needs that go on and actually weighing this uh, and still loving each other in spite of those risks, but also acknowledging them. Let's, let's actually let our elder people make those decisions um, as to what we're, life is worth. The second is... Um, and I would say this is just a way of, of kind of the privilege of being a physician and maybe the perspective that comes from and, and something I was reading in scripture recently. That is, what an amazing time for the gospel. We live in a unique situation where people's beliefs are being uh, shown for what they are, a shaky pedestal of, of uh, flimsy boards, a uh, house built on the sand. We have uh, instead a, uh, uh, this uh, hope as an anchor, as it says in Acts, where we, we know that we cannot be shaken even when shaking comes. The, uh, the remarkable thing about it is as the shaking happens and as people's beliefs and, and things that they're basing their whole life perspective on are being laid bare, we have uh, a unique opportunity to, to love them. So I would encourage people, look beyond the mask, look beyond the hiding, look beyond the tickets on Main Street, look beyond the uh the canceling of sports and and take those opportunities to love your neighbor you might even have to wear a mask as you lean across your uh, back fence and or have them over in your backyard for the purpose of 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 kindness to them Um, but you might also have an opportunity then through that kindness to actually hear them and know them and and share the hope that you have i'll give an example we've had opportunity to do business on main street even throughout the illness and I, and I find that the mask, uh, which I hate wearing, allows me to enter those businesses and then continue to have the kind contact that I think is building an opportunity to share Christ with them. Let me read to you something out of 1 Corinthians 9 that I thought, man, I, I think this is, this is worth keeping in mind. You know, and, and Paul is talking to a, a society not all that different than ours, a blended society facing all sorts of risks. And he basically says that I have become all things for the gospel. Even though I'm free from it all, I become a servant to all that I might win more of them. And he goes on to say that even to the point of uh, uh, being a Jew to Jews, being under a law for those that are under the law, even though he knows that that doesn't hold on him any longer, uh, he knows that he wants to become even weak for those that are weak, that he might win the weak. I think that might be actually a role for wearing a mask. We're wearing a, a mask for those that are feeling weak or are, are uh, wearing a, a mask out of weakness, of, of fear. And instead, what he says, I become all things to all people that I might save some, and I do it all for the sake of gospel so that I can share with them the blessings I have. You know, we have a remarkable time, and, and uh, in so many ways, whether it's the race, 
situation that is causing trouble, whether it's pandemics, whether it's uh, elections, uh, whether it's uh, love or hate for that seems to be so prevalent in our neighbors to be very different by God's grace. Amen. Thank you so much, sir. Yeah. Eager to have you back soon. Thank you much. Appreciate it.